Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. People struggling with eating challenges, disordered eating, eating disorders have one thing in common. They're totally disconnected from the wisdom of their bodies. They're not paying attention to signs and symptoms. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with the click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com and let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on The Last Stress Life, we're talking to Mindy Gorman-Putzer, who's a certified functional nutritionist, lifestyle practitioner, and eating psychology coach with over 25 years of experience. She's passionate about helping others recover from eating disorders and creating a healthier lifestyle. Her approach to disordered eating tackles the root cause of the issue and emphasizes that how and why you eat is just important as why you eat. Through her integrative approach, she also looks at the impact of disordered eating on one's daily life, digestion, and hormones. Her framework is called the Freedom Promise. 
and she's established a compassionate resolution of physical and emotional challenges resulting from chronic and complex health issues as they relate to eating disorders. So eating disorders just do lead to other cofactor or other things in life. So welcome, Mindy. Oh, it's great to be here, Krista. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So that would be like a great tipping off point on like, what are the like other things that go along with disordered eating? But I think before we get there, we were just discussing offline, like there are things that bring us usually to a topic that we're passionate about. And so how did you arrive in this place that you Mm. are passionate about this topic and serving this area? Well, it took years and years and years of personal growth that required a tremendous amount of truth-seeking, truth-telling, and vulnerability, accountability. For me, my journey to stop fearing what food would do to me uh, really was the offshoot of decades of dieting, decades of being deeply entrenched in diet culture. And for me, that started as a young teenager. I grew up in a loving home, but it was complicated. There were issues. There were health issues. My parents had weight issues of their own. So the message was always about image, body image, never being able to be too thin. How you looked was how you were perceived in the world. And for me, who learned at a very early age that in order to feel safe and to feel loved and seen, I needed to play the game, play by the rules, not ask for too much, and kind of stay out of the way. So that morphed into a little girl and a young woman who really needed to turn inward to feel in control. And that expressed itself in my relationship to and my behaviors with food. So dieting was a family affair. And it was the 1960s. So there was the Stillman diet. There was the Atkins diet. There was the cabbage soup diet. There was calorie counting, calorie restricting. There were prescription and over-the-counter diuretics. There were laxatives. There were over-the-counter appetite suppressants. And I made sure that I knew exactly where they were in my mother's bathroom and helped myself to them on a steady basis. So it wasn't only about controlling the food that was going into me through restriction. It was how to manage with compensatory behaviors, whatever it was that I was absorbing. And that led to turning my body really into a hot mess. And what I want to say, and what's important to say, important for us to note, is that not everybody who goes on a diet is going to develop an eating disorder. But in my experience, personal and professional, I haven't come across anybody with an eating disorder, disordered eating, serious eating challenges that hasn't started with a diet. So that's very important to understand. Well, and what I see, so I want to talk next about what comes along mm-hmm. with disordered eating because gut issues show up a lot. And I see a lot of gut issues in practice and there can be a history of disordered eating. And sometimes people say, I'm fine now. Right. And so, and sometimes they are not fine, right? There are things going on. And so I'd like to talk about conditions, symptoms, 
other things that go on in the body that come along with these disordered eating practices over a long time. Mm-hmm. Like what is prevalent that comes out from that in the rest of your body. And then we can get into what about the signs of disordered eating that are kind of sneaky that show that, hey, I've not fully addressed this issue for myself. Okay, so two well, separate things. Okay. First, let's talk about statistically 90 to 98% of people presenting with eating disorders, disordered eating. And I really want to talk about the differences have digestive dysfunction. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. And these imbalances, dysbiosis, dysfunction in the digestive system, which can show up in a number of ways that I'm very happy to enumerate for you. Very often, these symptoms pervade long after the behaviors result. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the signs and symptoms? Okay, first, there is bacterial imbalances that can show up as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So there you're going to have gas, you're going to have bloating, you're going to have distension, you're going to have some malabsorption, you might have weight gain, weight loss, inability to digest certain types of carbohydrates. So that's one issue. You're going to have other issues that could contribute to malabsorption. You could have chronic yeast overgrowth. That is a function of bacterial overgrowth, feeding on the carbohydrate, the yeast, especially if someone is binging on high sugar foods, they're just feeding into that issue. Then you have motility issues, right? How fast it takes, how long it takes for the food to move from the mouth to the large intestine, what's going to end up in the toilet. You have leaky gut, you know, whereas you have the gut impermeability where the tight junctions of the the stomach are supposed to be tight, they loosen and the bacteria and the food particles that are supposed to end up in the toilet end up creeping into the bloodstream. And that can cause brain fog. It can cause fatigue. It can cause depression, anxiety, a host of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely see a lot of those gut issues. And when you have gut issues, anything else is possible because of not absorbing nutrients really. So I have seen in practice a smaller than a handful of times, but still I always like to look for common denominators. And I've seen, so I work with a lot of bloating and gut dysfunction and dysbiosis, et cetera. And even if things are largely improved, I've seen a trend with people that have had long-term disordered eating or eating disorder history acknowledged more than a decade, maybe two decades, that it seems that they still have bloating issues. And sometimes we've been very easily able to track it to this definitely happens with stress for sure, right? But with those few people, the underlying, even though that stress is a part of it because you can't digest when you're under stress, right? It's almost like the most common denominator is that long-term eating disorder history where they're not resolving fully. And I'm not sure what the situation is. Like, is the physiology broken to where we can't get it to like perfection or is there an expectation of perfection from history of seeking perfection and perfection is actually not attainable, right? Like you would have bloating around your cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Or is there something else going on that I don't know about that's creating a situation where it's not resolving because I think we're excellent at resolving gut issues in clients. And so if someone is like, oh, this is a lot better, but I still have this, I just cannot help but notice that common denominator. How do you feel about this? 
Yeah, that's a loaded question because there's, you know, if we're going to acknowledge root cause, I can't help but thinking about the fact that we have to ask the question of our clients, are they simply doing recovery or are they being recovered? Mm. So if we're talking about eating disorders, disordered eating as a contributing factor to the gut dysfunction, we have to look at the belief system, the mindset, as well as the behaviors, the obvious behaviors with food that our clients are exhibiting. So yeah, stress contributes to gut imbalances. We know that, you know, it's a perfect example where psychology impacts physiology. Mm -hmm. And then again, if there are gut imbalances, that physiology is going to impact psychology. Mm -hmm. So we can have clients that believe they are doing everything correctly, but if they're still putting stress on their bodies, still carrying the stress in their minds with the disordered thinking, you've got to be creative and curious as to how that is impacting their gut health. Right. No, I agree completely. I want to reiterate or restate what you said. Okay. And I don't know if I got it. Is it, are they doing recovery or are you being recovered? Will you speak to that just a little bit more? Sure. Of course. Because that's really the next question is, when someone says, I'm fine now, or I've done this and this and this, how do you really know? Okay. Right? I mean, that's for them to decide. But as this is such a prevalent issue that I'd love you to, for you to shine the light on it wherever we can. Absolutely. Well, let's start out with the general premise that people struggling with eating challenges, disordered eating, eating disorders have one thing in common. They're totally disconnected from the wisdom of their bodies. They're not paying attention to signs and symptoms. So that's one part of it. Doing recovery is how we all have to start. We have to show up for our appointments. We have to commit to the process. We have to be accountable. We have to be vulnerable. That gets us to being recovered. But the difference requires an internal shift. One of the lines that I use all the time with my clients, probably ad nauseum, is that transformation, that internal shift, is less about what we do to change and more about what we let go of in order to become the change. So when we are recovered, when we're being recovered, when we are living a recovered life, we've made that internal shift. Now, that's not to say that there aren't times that we feel triggered. I consider myself a recovered woman after decades of eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors and disordered thinking and all of that and laxative abuse and what I've done to my gut years, years, years in the making. But there are times that I feel triggered. Will you give me examples of things that will trigger someone? Because you know, my question is like, is are people ever recovered? Which you're saying, yes, they are recovered. But that doesn't change history, right? I mean, we can still have triggers regardless yeah, of our history. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I consider myself recovered and yet I'm triggered. I will tell you that I still pop wide open when I see a magazine cover or a, a social media post that talks about the next great diet, right? My inbox is constantly sending me offers for the next detox or the next cleanse. My ears and my mind perks up. That's when I revert to doing recovery mm. and my healthy voice has to take over and remind me 
that that's not why I'm here, Mm -hmm. that that's not going to serve me. Mm -hmm. So in recovery, you still have to know how to go and do recovery. Right? Well, yeah, because life is full of triggers, right? And as we were talking about before we started to record, stress will always be there. Mm-hmm. It's how we respond to it rather than react to it. It's how we learn to manage the triggers. That's the toolbox that we all need to develop. And every one of us is going to have triggers unique to us. So we also wanted to talk a little bit about why... I mean, do you have any stats on how prevalent disordered eating and eating disorder? Actually, I know that was one thing you wanted to kind of lay out was the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, clinically, the definition of disordered eating is eating disorder behaviors that and consequences that are to a lesser degree. Simple, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the restricting, the overeating overeating that leads to binge eating, compensatory behaviors. So that would be over-exercising, vomiting, laxative abuse, diuretic abuse, but to a lesser degree. In my mind, I think that disorder eating is a much larger umbrella. I think disordered eating, basically the root cause of disordered eating is misguided behavior that is fueled by misinformation. Mm. Sure. So that, and basically it speaks to diet culture. Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes sense. I'll repeat it. The root cause of disordered eating is misguided behavior fueled by misinformation. Yeah. Okay. So an eating disorder, I mean, are you able to give us the definition of eating disorder? And then let's talk about the root causes of eating disorder. Maybe it's the same thing. It's just amplified. I don't know. I mean, you gave yeah, your story, but right. Well, well, there are different types of eating disorders, right. right? There's the severe restricting that's known as anorexia nervosa. And in fact, I recently came upon the work of Dr. James Greenblatt, who's a functional psychiatrist, and he talks about anorexia as being a biological response to malnutrition. I love that. I absolutely love that. And he talks about the need for supplementation, amino acids mm-hmm. to help somebody restore their body so that their minds and their brains can absorb what they need to in order to recover. I love that. I really love that. Yeah. So there's there's the severe restricting. There is the overeating, binge eating, binge eating disorder. And then there's bulimia, which is the binge eating with purging compensatory behaviors. And again, that could be compulsive exercise, vomiting, laxative, or diuretic abuse. Mm-hmm. And then there's ORFID, right? Avoidance of food restricting behavior. I, mm-hmm. I can't I, remember either right now. Yeah, I have a, a brain freeze on that right now. But that's basically where the person is restricting certain types of food, has an aversion to eating certain kinds of foods. Mm-hmm. And orthorexia is now listed in the DSM, but I have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. So sure. we can talk about that if you'd like. I think that it depends on orthorexia for me is defined differently depending on who's doing the eating and who's doing the defining. Yeah, sure. And I mean, orthorexia, I think generally the definition is like an obsession with health, but Mm -hmm. you know, that can look so different as you just described. 
Yeah. Because, uh, you know, is it somebody who's suffering from an autoimmune issue mm-hmm, sure. that is on a therapeutic protocol? Yeah. And sure. you can say she's obsessive about it because she wants to feel well. Right. Does that yep. mean she has a disorder? Or on the other side of the spectrum, you know, is the person who's the chronic dieter who's looking for the next quick fix and is totally disconnected from her body. Sure. So yep. like I Makes said, sense. it depends on who's doing the eating and who's doing the defining. Right. Exactly. Nope. That makes sense. It's, I mean, I think we could both probably give examples of what that looks like, but you gave a good one right there. And I do really appreciate that definition of a, of an eating disorder being a biological response to malnutrition because mm-hmm. it's some sort of malnutrition where the body becomes uh, for lack of a better word, there's things breaking down for sure. I mean, there's things breaking down in disordered eating for sure, but this is like more severe as you described to a greater extent. I often think with eating disorder, technical eating disorder, that yes, there's a need for, as you just described, need for amino acids and restoring the body so the mind can actually recover. But for me as a clinician, sometimes it feels like there is more mental mindset, all of that. Of course, it needs to be like a multidisciplinary care team. But for me personally, I view it as a somewhat of a psychology and behavioral. Like I think that that has to take maybe the bigger seat at the table sometimes. How do you feel? I mean, you have feet in both sides, which is great, right? And which is perfect. Mm -hmm. I think without having feet in both sides, it would be hard to help serve that population. But since you have feet in both sides, which side prevails more if either? It depends. Yeah, sure. It depends who's sitting in front of me. Mm -hmm. If my client is a chronic restrictor and is restricting food, first we eat, then we talk. At the same time, we're addressing where the fear of food is coming from. Mm -hmm. That's always an underlying issue. But if you are so underfed and so malnourished, you're not going to be able to cognitively accept or receive what needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. If I'm working with a woman who is binging, losing herself to food every night, then I'm going to start with my version of an elimination diet as a functional practitioner, which is eliminating inflammatory and toxic thoughts. Mm. Where did that belief system come from? Why is the need to self-soothe so severe? Let's talk about the context within which the behaviors evolved. Mm -hmm. So it depends. It really depends on who I'm sitting with and what I can suss out regarding story, history, and how that's showing up in behaviors. I bet that can have a wide breadth of responses, whether if someone's ready to be vulnerable or not, right? Oh, for sure. Takes a while. Right. There's some trust. And it's very hard to trust somebody else when you don't trust yourself. Yeah, right. You know, I often talk about recovery being very relational. Mm. It starts with relationship to self. Mm -hmm. And relationship to self is reflected in our relationship to everything else. Will you speak about that just a little bit more? Give us like an intangible example. I think that's so valuable to not skip over very quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, we all come to the present moment with a story. And When there are issues and challenges, particularly with a relationship to and behavior with food, which is really self serves to Mm self-soothe, where did that need to self-soothe come from? What is the story behind that? What's the context within which those behaviors evolve? And I always 
right off the bat, let my clients know that their eating disorder is not the problem. It started out as a brilliant solution to help them feel safe in a world that they felt they had to learn to navigate. Mm, Because they could control the inward part, right? So they thought. Right, sure. Right. What happens is these behaviors, the the disorder starts controlling them, Mm -hmm. but they're so afraid to let go of it. After all, who will I be without this behavior? Who will I be? Mm -hmm. I'd actually like to ask you about the role of perfectionism in this in general, because perfectionism is, it's a huge stressor for people, right? If we have that type A perfectionist Mm -hmm. tendency, and that's where I see more of this overall, I guess, trying to perfect our body. How do you see it playing in As you just described, the perfect body is going to help me have the perfect life. Mm, Which is a belief. Right? If my relationship with food improves, my life will improve. So as far as perfectionism, it's only a perception. Mm -hmm. It's a 50-50 perception. It's only a perception. It's based on a belief system. Mm -hmm. And as far as if my relationship with food is perfect, my life will be perfect. If my weight is perfect, my life will be perfect. It's really the other way around. Yeah. There will always be something else. Right. No matter what we're talking about. That when we straighten out that relationship to self, the relationship to the life we're living, Mm -hmm. look at how we're styling our lives, the rest will fall into place. Yeah, for sure. And, And I think... We should all give up the idea of seeking perfect. There's nothing wrong with seeking excellence. I just read recently, perfection is the enemy of great. Mm. I'm just taking the moment to let that sink in. That's okay. Um, So I do want to talk about, you have a, a comment in our list here about conventional eating disorder recovery protocols often fail. And I'd like you to speak more to that. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the pervasive amount of gut dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And we know that the gut-brain connection is huge. The impact that the gut has on the brain is enormous. And the conventional eating disorder treatment protocols of all foods fit, which means that in order to commit fully to recovery, Mm -hmm. you need to commit to eating everything. Mm well, that just doesn't work for everybody yeah. because there are issues within the microbiome Mm -hmm. after years of restricting, restricting, binging and purging and the stress that comes with it Mm -hmm. that make it impossible for the gut to handle all foods. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be respected. And it's not. And I've had this conversation with one too many conventional treatment practitioners, whether they're dietitians or therapists, and their attitude is the body will adjust or institutionally, it's too difficult to cater to individual diets. And it's, it's just something that's overlooked. And what gets me is that they will acknowledge that there is something to the gut-brain connection, mm-hmm. but I guess it's institutionally, maybe it's about the almighty buck. Yeah. They're just not willing to make that shift in how they're feeding their patients. And basically what happens is this all foods fit diet, in my experience, personally and professionally, is it just feeding the anxiety? 
Mm-hmm. No, this is a rift, right? We were talking about this on off air, but this is the head point of it is that there is disordered eating, which the half of the internet that has disordered eating history, eating disorder history, and supports and serves that clientele can be synonymous, not always, with health at every size and some of like these other movements. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's not very, people are not transparent about the eating disorder history. There's a lot of triggering that happens there for sure. And like you said, there's really some inappropriate functional things in functional medicine that are not appropriate for someone with that's in eating disorder recovery, mm-hmm. um, quite honestly. But we can't ignore the fact that there's physiological issues for them. And so when they're trying to consume everything and not digesting it well and uncomfortable, it's fueling the anxiety, as you describe, both physiologically and yeah. psychologically. Yes. So what can practitioners do to do better in this area? Because I feel like there's enough of a gap, right? Like for me, I don't want to, I would rather you know, refer to someone like you for a client who's in kind of the midst of this. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense to me. I think, oh, if you've got expertise in this area, great. But then there's everyone else who has no experience in gut health, right? But they kind of, they maybe start to see the value of it, or they're seeing that they're running into those roadblocks or their treatments options are failing because that's not being addressed. What is your advice to practitioners and to clients? Hone your active listening skills and allow yourself to be open to the fact that when a patient is talking about their discomfort, the digestive discomfort, it might be more than psychological. Given the fact that there is it's definitely a psychological component, you know, because here this patient is where she is because she fears what food will do to her. Mm-hmm. It, let's acknowledge that and let's deal with that. But at the same time, if our mission is to develop a better, healthier relationship to self, part of that has to be developing a connection to her body, her body's wisdom, helping her to learn that she can trust her body, that she can love her body. I don't mean love how it looks. Mm-hmm. I don't know a woman that the healthiest woman doesn't always love the way her body looks. I'm talking about treating it with love and respect, nurturing it, nourishing it. So I want to make that clear when I say love your body. Yeah, no, I think that's good to qualify. Right. But helping women connect to the wisdom of their bodies is the foundation. It's the ultimate goal, but it's also the foundation. But that also begs the question, if choosing to eat a food doesn't make you, you feel well, why would you choose to eat it? And that's part of what I like to teach as empowerment. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching clients to be make empowered choices based on how they feel. It's about willingness as opposed to willpower. Mm. So for the practitioner, listen, open your eyes, look at the big picture, be broad-minded, respect the person that's in front of you, and don't just write them off as some head case because eating disorders are not all in your head. There's a huge biological component. There's a huge genetic component mm-hmm. and it, it all needs to be addressed. When someone's trying to lean into the wisdom of their body and they're struggling with signs of perfection or signs of triggered thoughts or all mm-hmm. of those things, what are their options? Patience. It's a process, a process of developing trust, of learning to listen to and 
honor hunger cues, satiety cues, and fullness cues. There's a difference between satiety and fullness Mm -hmm. because we'll never learn to love what we don't trust Mm -hmm. and we'll never trust what we don't love. So it's opening people up to the reality that where they are is about that lack of trust, that fear that sparks that lack of trust. And that's why I also have an issue with throwing out the term intuitive eating, Mm. because it's impossible to be an intuitive eater if you don't have an intuition regarding your hunger, fullness, and satiety. That was the term I was looking for earlier, uh, because sometimes haze and intuitive eating is all the same. And I think that that's a really confusing term in general, isn't it? Intuitive eating. Intuitive eating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, it's become, in my mind, just another part of diet culture. Mm. You know, um, you know, intuitive eating is going to tell you, sure, you know, you want a donut, go eat a donut. You want a Snickers mm-hmm. bar, go eat a Snickers bar. The truth is your body doesn't want a donut or a Snickers bar. Your mind might, your memory might, that limbic system trigger might want the donut or the Snickers bar. But if you're dealing with health issues, you're dealing with digestive issues, your body doesn't want a Snickers bar or a donut. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I see this being a problem for sure. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Along with you. So it's like, oh, let's swing to completely the other side also, you know, like I don't mind a Snickers bar or a donut if someone wants that, right? Like I oh. this isn't a criticism around no, it. It's no, just no. it's more like it's like, hey, you've been restricting for a long time. Why don't you just eat everything all at once and see how you feel? Right. right. And well, exactly. Doesn't... Look, and I'm all about food neutrality. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna sit in judgment and say yeah, food sure. is good or bad. What I do object to as a practitioner with a lot of integrity is condoning people eating products that are disguised as food Mm -hmm. that I have a problem with. I'm going to be very honest about that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I want people to eat whole food as often as they can. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a very big issue. And, you know, as a functional medicine practitioner, it's not only important to look at what we're eating, but it's more important to look at what our bodies are doing with what we're eating. So that feeds, no pun intended, or maybe intended, you know, to go into that whole conversation about stress and inflammation, you know, inflammatory processes that are, that are in the body. Right. Spurred on by fracken foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to feel good. We need to digest and use, like if we're already malnourished, we need to digest and utilize nutrients from food because they're helpful and supportive and good for us. Exactly. I shouldn't say good for us, but like we need to eat. It's how we were designed. Actually, we actually need to eat as it turns out. You know, Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. Let medicine be thy food. Steve Jobs in his final essay said, let food be thy medicine. So medicine need not be your food. Mm, That was a good adjustment on that. Cool, man. We could talk about a lot, but I think we've covered We've done a good job. I was like working on my title as we talked about decades of dieting, overcoming food fear, responding to triggers, some things practitioners need to know about recovery. Something I thought was really important was, are you in recovery or are you doing recovery? And mm-hmm. if you're in recovery, you might need to do recovery from triggers. Talked about disordered eating versus eating disorders. There's a lot of work here, right? Yeah. You know, what's important for people to understand is the true definition of recovery is to regain what was lost or taken, right? You can recover your set of keys, 
mm-hmm. recover yourself, recover the part of you that was lost to a food haze. But recovery is not about weight management. It's not about food groups. It's very nuanced and it needs to be extremely bio-individual. So back to the question you asked me about what practitioners need to know, I'd like to point that out to them to be aware of what the true definition of recovery is. Well, and I now have a new question that if someone who has a disordered eating history comes into a practice and it says that they are recovered, but desires some kind of weight management or changes Mm -hmm. around that, is that actually a red flag for not being recovered potentially, or that recovery work is needed or hard to say maybe? Uh, No, again, I'm going to say it depends. It Mm -hmm. depends on their willingness. It depends on their accountability. It depends on, I would say a red flag would be an obsession. A red flag would be willing to go to extremes. Mm -hmm. A red flag would be the disconnect from the body. You know, if a woman came in and she said, you know, I'm eating this, I'm eating that, working out this way, and everything, you know, is where it should be in terms of middle ground and appears to be healthy, I would first dig into the gut piece. Mm-hmm. I dig into the hormone piece. I dig into the what I call stinking thinking piece. Mm. You know, and then of course, you know, where is the level of acceptance? Yeah. So Again, it depends. And I know I'm saying that and I'm not avoiding your question, but it's important to make the point that all of this work is so unique to the individual. And that's the gift that we can offer our clients, Mm -hmm. that we're seeing them, we're feeling them, we get them, and we're not giving them a cookie cutter stamped out one size fits all protocol. Right. Mindy, we could keep talking for a long time, I'm sure, with that undoubtedly. But where can people find you online? Uh, Well, it's thefreedompromise.com. Instagram, I am at thefreedompromise. My website has a host of freebies. I have a guide to my seven steps to food freedom. I have a free master class and I have an eight-week self-study course that is entitled Stop Fearing Food an unconventional approach to say goodbye to your disordered eating for good. And in that, I detail my own insanity, my own failed attempts at any kind of recovery, and the tools and strategies that I've developed and rely on daily to walk the walk. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And that'll be in the show notes and for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Krista. I really enjoyed it. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.